soon as Halloween's done, even the world decides to jump into Christmas. I know, I'm not ready. Nobody's ever ready. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Frame by Frame, a song-by-song analysis about legendary progressive rock band King Crimson. Come and join us in our test of discipline. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Frame by Frame, the only podcast that dares to take the King Crimson discography one at a time. That is one song, one song. So I am Ryan, and joining me as always is Avery. Avery, how's everything over there? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. It it started snowing for both of us this week, which was just pretty nice. Yeah, um, over here it was before Halloween, and it it's just bizarre because like the leaves on the trees haven't fully changed color yet. Mm-hmm. So there were like green leaves with snow on them. It it is rather strange, yeah, because it, it happened just after Halloween. So we're recording this on the first of November. So um, this episode will probably be out well after that fact. But in any case, that that's how far in advance we record these, but. Um, yeah, yeah, it's snowing here, but I like the snow. I don't know about you. I always, I, I always, don't. I, you don't? <laughs> no. Okay. I've always enjoyed winter, so I just like when it's cold. I just don't like sweating. Mm. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm one of those weirdos who sweats like crazy the moment it's above like 60 degrees. So when it's oh. below that, I'm just like, oh, okay. Snow. I don't just wake up in a pool of sweat, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so enough of the chit-chat, I guess. Let's get on to the song for this week, and that is the King Crimson pop song, Cat Food. Or at least I believe that's how it's been described before, is the King Crimson pop song. And up until about, I would say, 1982, it was the closest thing they ever had to a pop song, despite... Really, when you think about it, it's not a pop song. No. Like, how would you describe it? Like, jazz pop. Like, jazz attempting to be pop. Yes. Yes. Very much like weird jazz guys who who maybe some record labels, like, you got to write a hit. And then they're like, oh, okay, I guess we'll try to write a hit. But they just, like, got, like, a new pianist who really wants to show off how, like, out there he is so they had to use him instead yeah the the subject matter is pretty unique for a pop song yeah like i I think peter simfield was just out grocery shopping one day and then he just went past the pet food aisle and then he was just like hmm i've got an idea fripp fripp's just (laughs) like okay okay um i believe this is one of the I think this is the, no, that's not true. I was about to say this is one of the tracks that didn't have Ian McDonald on it at all, but I believe this is the only track he has writing credit on. Yeah, I noticed that. Which is very interesting because as far as I know, he's never really mentioned it before. At least I don't think he has. Um, There's no reference to it in McDonald and Giles. Um, he has performed it live with the Schizoid Band, 
and his take on he plays the piano part and his take oh, on the wow. and his take on the piano part it's definitely inspired by what Keith Tippett did but it's obviously not the same they're not the same player so it makes me think that Ian wrote this on piano but decided to let Fripp and Sinfield use it because I didn't get a lot of historical information about Kaffir. At least I couldn't find that much in the limited time that I had. But it, it's weird to think that this is the one they gave him credit for when there's obvious other stuff they used from his writing on this record that they don't credit him for. But Avery, what is your opinion on cat food? It's one of my favorite King Crimson songs. Like, it, it's just such a bop. <laughs> I would agree. Well, what about it um, makes it such a bop for you? I, I really like the piano and then just, like, the rhythm and, like, the bass in it. Like, the lyrics, like, the verses just have, like, a really catchy melody. I, I've always really liked that chorus. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very solid chorus. Yeah. And I, I think the pacing is really good. It moves very well. It's not too fast. It's not too slow. Um, and even though there's a lot of lyrics Greg has to sing, he's able to fit them all in really well. And yeah. having that kind of fast-paced rhythmic style almost gives you the feeling of, like, say, the Lady Window Shopper and everything's just kind of flying at you and just trying to make sense of it, I guess. Um but it, it's such an interesting tune because this is the song that breaks the whole like in the wake is just a rip off of in the court because there is yeah. nothing comparable to in the court on this. In fact, to me, this and the next track devil's triangle are the side of this album that is definitely totally different and is the side that to me seems like that's what they want to push towards something that has a little bit more jazziness and a little bit more ambition, but not against the idea of writing catchy tunes. But if they're going to write catchy tunes, they have to be done in the King Crimson way. And, and I mentioned it was the King Crimson pop song. So of course they released it as a single at the time, with a very interesting single artwork which I believe it's just like a cat's face and like a flower or something, something zoomed up, but they just like put a cat's face in there. Um, and from, from what I've gathered, the song never charted at the time. There, were, there was no single success anywhere, which is a bit of a shame. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a bit of a shame considering that it felt like they were trying to push the song to be a single to get that sort of radio play. And I think that's because maybe people weren't sure if King Crimson was going to be a singles band or an album band, but the first album that had the In the Court single, it was only a very minor hit in America. It didn't even chart in the UK at all. So, but it did really well in the album charts. But I, I guess still by 1970, people were still wanting to have like the singles that could be played on the radio rather than just pulling from the record. And I don't think King Crimson was nearly established enough to do that. I have a feeling by once we get to Lurks, people are just like, yes, that's an album band. That's just what they do. 
even though they tried to, they didn't really try to have singles in the Lizard and Islands period. And the Larks album, I don't think has a single, but I know they made a single for the South and Bubble Black record and then wouldn't really bother with singles until like the 80s. But maybe the whole not really wanting to do singles is because the song didn't chart at all. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, like, what would have happened if it did? Like, it feels like a top would 10 be so UK different. Hit. Like a top yeah. 10 UK hit. Yeah. Yeah. It, pro- possibly. It could have maybe have propelled EG and the record company to, like, want to keep Fripp and Sinfield together, you know, and try to, like, just have them keep writing other cat food things, you know? Like, they probably yeah. would have paid Keith Tippett an absorbent amount of money to stay on as like the piano player and yeah, definitely would have pushed Crimson in a much different direction. I, I, I think about that alternate universe and I don't know if that Crimson would be better or worse. It would most definitely be different. Yeah. But I am happy with our universe's version of King Crimson. So, me too. Because as much as I love cat food, to me, it's probably my favorite song on the entire record. And if I'm thinking about the first four records, it is one of the top tier songs, really. Um, I remember when I was getting in the King Crimson, Cat Food was a song that stood out to me instantly. You know, it was a short little four or five minute track. Um, it was very catchy, had that very memorable piano styling from Keith Tippett. Um, this is the song that essentially made him or at least this is the song he's probably most well known for. There is another piece from his group called Dedicated to You But You Weren't Listening that is a bit popular in like jazz groups. But I imagine for thousands of people, this is their one and only time hearing he Tippett play. And for a lot of people, it would just sound like, oh, he's just playing random notes. He's just kind of going crazy, whatever, which he definitely is. But when you listen to it, it definitely sounds like it's either, it's something he's worked out because it flows really well with the melody and is almost in key, but it could just be that whole like tonal thing where he's just playing all the notes. And if you're playing all the notes, you know, some of them are going to be in the key of the song. So (laughs) your chances are higher. Um, (laughs) But it just, again, it flows. It's just, I love that crazy stuff he does. And then near the end of the song where he starts to, when the song softens and keeps doing that, like it'll soft, then come back up and then come back down. Um, his playing becomes more complex and a lot more kind of standard jazz fare. And it's, and it's weird to think the idea of how this song would have sounded without his piano. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it. Like, <clears throat> I'm not sure. It, how- it would just be a different song. It, it would groove, but it would feel empty, you know? Yeah. Because Peter Giles' bass groove is really, really good. Um, yeah. I love that line. And it's interesting to think that Fripp doesn't play that much guitar on it. Like, really, the most guitar he plays is during, like, the choruses and that weird little solo bit, which I don't even know how he got that sound. But it's such a, it's such a unique little thing. It almost is kind of like proto-Adrian Ballou, in a way. Yeah. Playing his guitar in a very weird way just to get like a weird sound out of it. Um, As far as I know, he's never really been able to properly replicate it. 
because on some of the live versions that I heard, which well, I listened to one of them from the Wetton period, the the one you were talking about in Rome when they did Peace a Theme and then going into Cat Food, I listened to that one. And then I listened to a live version from the Jacko era. I think, I think it was the live version they released on like the, the 50th anniversary cat food single to sort of commemorate it. And both cases, Fripp doesn't redo that solo. Um, on the Wetton version, which I believe is in, you said it's either in Rome or Milan, Italy. I actually have three versions. Um, there's one from Rome, and then there was one from Glasgow. And then the third one I have was in Zurich. Okay. Then I probably heard the one in Rome. Um, yeah. He doesn't even attempt a solo. Like, yeah. It almost sounds like they rewrote the song, because you have Bruford doing his, like, you know when they would do Easy Money Live, and then they'd come back for the last verse, and then Bruford's doing that insane, like, almost disco hi-hat opening and closing? Yeah, just does that for the entire song. I don't know if I like it in this song. It just it 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 makes it more aggressive. But it's like I don't know if cat food is meant to be an aggressive song. Yeah, it it's it's interesting, but yes, the the jazz pop version is how the song is meant to be. Absolutely, though I do like Wetton's aggressive bass tone playing that riff. It sounds really good. Yeah. Um. And I find it interesting how the piano is kind of replaced by the violin. I mean, it makes sense. It's easy to get those kind of squealy tones out of it. And David Cross, as always, you know, being the the cool guy in the band that nobody talked about. So that was just his role. Um, But the live version from the Jacko era, which I believe they did in 2019, if I'm correct. I wasn't sure what to think about it because... On the one hand, I mean, it's Jacko, but the song's not that challenging lyrically. He does okay. Um, what's funny is they had they added, like, some of the, um, the master track into the live performance. So, like, Greg's laugh right before the first chorus, which I love that laugh, by the way. Oh, oh, you want to yeah. hear the, the best fact about this song? What is the best fact about this song? That laugh is because Fripp mooned him in the recording studio. Oh, that's right. I remember hearing about that. That's one of my favorite King Crimson facts. And weirdly enough, that coincides with, um, there's a Beatles song called Maxwell Silver Hammer. And there's that song. Oh yeah. And you know, the bit in the, during the track where Paul starts singing writing 50 times, but he's laughing as he says it. Yeah. That's because John Lennon mooned him during that as well. Wow. Cause the line right before it was, so he waits behind. And then I guess John got inspired and showed him his butt. Wow. I don't know what it is with British guys like mooning each other during vocal takes, but I think Greg's reaction was better, but yeah. And and I think it's the it's the second best laugh in the King Crimson catalog. There is one I like more, and it's very, very soon. Oh, yes. You know the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one that some people hate. But I think the hate people who hate on it are, are wrong. 
Oh yeah, I was t- yeah. So I was talking about the live version from Jacko. That's right. So they add the laugh in there, and also when it's time for like the guitar solo, they just play the solo bit, the guitar solo bit, without Fripp having to do it. <laughs> um, but the Jacko version, it's fine. You know, it's it's fine. If I saw him live, it'd be really cool. Like if I saw King Crimson live and they started performing cat food, I'd probably jump out of my seat and start, and startle the the old guy next to me. But <laughs> um, but again, listening to it back, um, the song part it it does what it needs to do, but there's nothing too remarkable about it. Mel Collins' little sax bit on there, he doesn't do a lot, just a little bit, because he's not on the studio version, which I think is for the best. As much as I love Mel, I think if there was the if there was sax on the studio version, it would have been a little too much. Yeah, but live it works. But the 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 little instrumental soft bit after the song is done and they just can kind of play around is really the best part because it shows how strong the modern band is instrumentally, and when they're allowed to just kind of improvise and and the drummers and everybody just kind of fuck around with the idea. They make it their own, but in a way that still is tasteful to the original piece. You know, I'll always prefer the Jacko band instrumentally because they just, they just work so much better. And it's not necessarily a slight on Jacko's voice. I just think when they're just allowed to play instrumentally, there are so many creative minds within that group when they get to play off of each other in improvising something new for an old song or just doing a brand new improvisation, it just sounds really good. And I just wish we could capture that more definitively on an actual album. Rather yeah. than just having tour till the day they die. But <laughs> but alas. Daddy Fripp says no. Yep. And he means it. <laughs> or oh what was it? Um oh Bobby Wilcox. Was that oh, it? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. Stomping Bobby Wilcox. <laughs> yeah, and then in a recent Instagram post, uh, Pat Masolato refers to him as Throbbing Bob. Throbbing Bob. Maybe not so much these days, but probably back in the day. I could, <laughs> I, I could, that would make sense. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to think about that part of his anatomy. But, <laughs> but with weirdos like that, you almost can't help but wonder, like... What's going on down there? <laughs> it's probably for the best we don't know. How about yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, uh, he went into a bit of detail in one of his journal entries from 1981. Oh, he, yeah. oh, he, oh, he knows? He talks about his experiences with women in the early days of King Crimson. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I, I being guess he one didn't of those use women. protection because he got a couple STDs. Well, it was the it was the late '60s. No one was doing that, man. That's not cool. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I wasn't around then, but I I just got the I just thought of it. It's weird that the Islands Band never touched cat food as well. Mm. But maybe that's because they didn't have like a proper piano or keyboard player. So they're like, yeah. we can't really replicate it because I can't imagine like replacing the piano with Mel Collins sax. That just wouldn't. Yeah, that wouldn't that fly. Just... Or even if Fripp tried it on guitar, like I get the feeling they probably tried Cat Food as the Islands Band, but it just didn't work. 
Yeah. But I'd like to hear a rehearsal of that. If it, if it exists, I would like to hear their attempt. But there is one more live performance, if I can stretch that term, with the famous Top of the Pops video version of Cat Food. Yes. Yes. The one that was thought to be lost forever and ever. And it popped up, I think it was just a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. It was the German version. Because I guess, from what I remember, the original Top of the Pops version was done in color and was the whole single version because they cut it short on the version that we've seen. But I guess when they would send, when they would send the, the reels to other, to like the other countries like France, Germany or whatever, they would just send them a black and white copy and then have them fitted into their like pop music show thing. And I guess somebody was able to find like the German version. So if you want to hear like quirky uh, uh, banter uh, from two German people about King Crimson, where the one dude confuses the the host confuses King Crimson for the Kinks, trying to be all funny, and and, <laughs> and and the woman is just constantly like so like oh you don't know who King Crimson is what's wrong with you? It's the song called Cat Food, you fucking idiot. Or at least <laughs> there's that vibe, you know. And then they cut to the quote live performance. I use quotes. Yes, because everybody knows. Everybody should know at this point that Top of the Pops was known for people mi- miming the performances rather than playing them live. There were there are some notable exceptions where some artists did it live for real, but King Crimson was not one of those bands. And it's so interesting they did this Top of the Pops because, again, the single didn't chart. In fact, the album was the highest charting King Crimson album in the UK ever. I think it was like, like number four. So they definitely were successful at the time. And I guess we're trying to bust into that singles market with the Top of the Pops performance, but it didn't help at all. And I don't know if the performance came before or after the single was released. If it came out before, it probably would have helped. But I get the feeling they did that after it came out, and it didn't really help boost the sales at all. Just my guess. I could be wrong. But the live version is very interesting, or the, the, the video version is very interesting because you can kind of hear, while they have the song definitely playing on like the speakers and everything, you can hear behind it Greg singing actually and some yeah. of like the miming instrument sounds behind it, which is what I'd rather hear. I'd rather just like take away that version with like the stuff and I just want to hear him like miming it. Yeah, like, I'm wondering if that was, like, Fripp and Greg's last time performing together on stage. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. I don't think they ever appeared on stage again. Yeah, and this was in uh, March of 1970, right? Before the release of the album? Yes. So, and I don't know exactly when the single was released. Um, I'm going to cheat and check real quick. So maybe I was wrong in saying that, like, I guess the video and the single came out at, like, the same time. I mean, I guess it did well enough. Uh, the The cat food single came out the 13th of March, and then the album came out the 15th of May. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the exact date of the top of the pops performance, but I guess it's probably within the same week of the single dropping. But it didn't yeah. help. It didn't help boost sales because I can't imagine people who watched Top of the Pops in 1970 thinking Cream Crimson are pretty good. You know, yeah. like, it's, it's just the wrong audience for it. But at the time, where else would you have promoted your song other than Top of the Pops? 
Oh, do you want to maybe discuss the lyrics in any kind of great detail? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, three women named in the song. There's Lady, Lady Supermarket, Lady Window Shopper, and then Lady Yellow Stamper. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, are these supposed to represent, like, specific people? Like, what exactly does he mean? Because I know I... the song is about, like, consumerism and, like, processed food. Mm-hmm. But... I feel Peter like Simfield, he could have gone like deeper. Yeah, I feel like it's all the same person. Yeah, it just makes sense. Like it's just the lady who's at this lady who goes to the supermarket, you know, and yeah, she goes to the supermarket. She has an apple, but then like I guess she talks to the manager about something. Oh, maybe she knows this manager, you know, lays lays the goods on the floor, you know. So apparently she's just laying TV dinners on the manager's office floor, <laughs> saying, it says you eat it and come back for more. You know, maybe she's complaining about it or trying to understand what it means by that. Because I think in 1970, maybe in England, I don't know, because I'm pretty sure in America, the whole frozen TV dinner thing, which I imagine that's what he's specifically talking about. Yeah. Those became big in America during the 1950s. So maybe there was some time overlap in England bef- until they got big. Maybe. Because um, it definitely has this aura about it that it's trying to understand what this new, like, convenience frozen food thing is supposed to mean. Yeah. Like, it's and a you guy. You tell Peterson feels not a big fan of it. Like, oh, yeah, he not even off. fit for a horse. Yeah, he comes off as one of those, like, fiery vegan types. You know? Yes, and then we find out he is one of those fiery vegan types later so, on in 1973 with yeah. his lyrical masterpiece, Whole Food Boogie. <laughs> it has to be a sequel to this. It has to be. They are definitely taking from cat food because it's just more of him bitching about food. He's one, and that's the thing. Yeah, he's one of those vegans that, like, if he saw you eating a cheeseburger, he would probably try to shame you publicly for eating it. Like, what is wrong with you eating this meat? It's like I don't like shit, Peter. Just let me enjoy my cheeseburger. I'm at Wendy's here. Like, Like, dude, I make shit wages. This is all I can afford. Yeah, organic whole food was cheaper. I'd eat it. But that's a whole other issue. Though I do miss when supermarkets had Muzak. What, what do you mean? Well, because the third line is grooving to the Muzak from a speaker in the shoe rack. Yeah, yeah. but like they all they still play music. No, yeah, but it I, I but, miss I miss like that canned Muzak stuff that they made specifically for grocery stores. You know the do do instead of oh just, yeah that's instead of just playing jazz. like yeah instead of just playing like you know, the the radio hits that were awesome, like, five years ago. Like, just just play, like, that instrumental smooth jazz. And I'll be, it, I'd groove to that more. It, it fits better. Or maybe I just need to make an ambient record called Music for Supermarkets. You I know, think you should. It'd be the spiritual brother to Music for Airports. You know, Brian Eno, Brian Eno would probably criticize me in a very complimentary way, but I will take it, you know, senpai. Um, <laughs> and you know it, that could be an interesting artistic statement, but but I just want the artistic statement to be smooth jazz with no soul, man. That's all I want. 
so yeah the first yeah the first verse is very i don't know what he's trying to get at here other than just like this lady is so excited that like you don't have to eat the food right away that she's so excited about she needs to like tell the manager that's like the very me when i got my snap card just going ape shit just like oh this this candy's on sale. Let me let me buy two pints of Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, let's do it. it, it it's a very enabled an- five dollars. That's not going to stop me. It's an anti-Karen. <laughs> um. So then there's the second verse. Um. Lady window shopper with a new one in the hopper whips up a chemical brew, croaking to a neighbor while she polishes a saber. Knows how to flavor a stew. Never need to worry with a tin of hurry curry poisoned especially for you. So I'm assuming this yeah. is the same woman because it, it, it definitely paints this character as like the um, the character in Snow White that has like the cauldron. It's like, I'm going to get the poison apple for Snow White. Or at least that's the immediate picture I get when it's all like someone's whipping up a brew, you know, it's this giant cauldron that needs like a huge guitar sized ladle to just turn. You know, yeah, and then it, it mentions hurry curry, which I guess was like really popular in Britain back then. Yeah, I mean, people uh, people like curry, so you know. Yeah, it's just like this, like cheap, like like ready meal or whatever. Like you would just like microwave it or heat it up or whatever. It sounds like the seventy. They really have microwaves much back then, but <laughs> I think I think they did, but I think mm. they were. I think there were still commodities than necessities at the time. Yeah. I could be wrong. Um, it almost sounds like the 70s British equivalent of like instant ramen. Yeah, like that's, five cents. I think that's essentially what it was. Yeah. yeah. And that shit is disgusting. I can't eat it anymore. <laughs> you know, I've actually never had ramen. If you ever get ramen, get real ramen. Like go to, go to like, like, a, like a restaurant, like an Asian restaurant that has ramen or just you know get the real shit it's like a they'll give you a big bowl full of like broth and then you get like the noodles and egg and all this vegetables like it's real ramen is delicious and it will make you go why the hell did i ever try this freaking 25 cent ramen that you like it crumbles when you when you try to like touch it and then you just like pour some water into it and mix the terrible um like chicken flavor or whatever and put it in the mic for like two minutes and then you eat this and you're just like what am i doing with my life am i that desperate of a of a college student yes i am but it started giving me like really bad headaches so i just couldn't i couldn't eat that shit anymore oh man so i I swore off of it for a long time this is gonna sound really stupid but for a long time i always thought the line um while she polishes a saber had a double meaning to it i think it's just (laughs) me being a dummy but like, when you read the lyrics, it's like, oh, yeah, she's probably just polishing somebody's sword, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's what people do, I guess. I mean, if you have a sword, I'd want that shit to be shiny. Yeah. So. <laughs> it could be, like, a knife, maybe. Like, a knife to, like, cut up, like, meat or whatever. That but... makes a lot more sense than a sword. <laughs> yeah. It's just this this lady goes to the grocery store store she just comes back and when she's done like putting her groceries away she just starts wielding wielding the sword around just for the hell of it she she lays down a bunch of carrots on a table that's like like three feet away and then yeah. she like gets her like holster and then just whips it out and just like in one motion c- cuts carrots 
it's probably good exercise. Swords are heavy. And then we have the chorus, the no use to complain. If you're caught out in the rain, your mother's quite insane. Cat food, cat food again. So is this character somebody's mom? So is this like this person is friends with the character in the story's like child and is like seeing this as like, like, is he like trying to okay boomer her? (laughs) (laughs) Even though they're the boomers and their parents are like, oh, What's the generation? What, like, greatest generation? Greatest generation. Yeah, it'd be like, okay, 20s. okay, GGs. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never got, like, no use to complain if you're caught out in the rain, like, what that actually means. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it rhymes very well, and, is, and it hits, but it doesn't, much like a lot of what Peter Sinfield does, it doesn't feel like it ties to the theme of the song. It's just like, this works, let's just do this, I guess. Yeah. Like, oh, these, these words sound nice together. Like, the line, your mother's quite insane. It's like, what What does... Oh, I love that line. <laughs> but whenever I sing along, instead of mother, I always say mama. Because I feel mama flows better. Your mama's quite insane. But hmm. that's just like an American thing, I guess. But the final, ver- the final verse is probably the most descriptive or the one that sums up everything. Though I don't know what a lady yellow stamper is. Hmm. You know, I'm thinking, like, kind of reminds me of the line in Dancing with the Moonlit Night by Genesis, Night of the Green Shield Stamp and Shout. It's like, yeah. It's like they have, like, these stamps of for, like, different, like, grocery stores or whatever. Some kind of, like, I, I guess, like, an early version of a rewards program or something. I don't yeah. know what it was. Like I'm, I'm sure a British person who's listening to this can explain it. Stamps used but... to be very popular. Yeah. Like people collect them. <laughs> like food stamps. I don't know if they really had an equivalent to that. Probably it wouldn't. Yeah. It, probably. But um, yeah, lady yellow stamper with a fillet and a hamper dying to finish the course. Goodies for the table with a fable on the label drowning in miracle sauce. Don't think I am that rude if I tell you that it's cat food not even fit for a horse. This lady is trying to serve this food to like a group of people at like a dinner or something. And then and then Peter is and then Peter just like stands up and this is this is cat food not fit for a horse. And then like walks away in a jazzy vegan rage. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is weird if like you've ever gone to somebody's house and they, and they're like, Oh, we have dinner. And then the dinner is just like some frozen shit they made up. So it's like, yeah, interesting. But you know, we don't care. We're, we're not, we're not above food or, you know, yeah. weird amalgamations considered food. I don't know. I still eat it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I live on like microwave possibles from Shaw's. And- hey, cats and wendy's so i have like i i can't judge what anyone eats <laughs> yeah i feel it i i live off of like slim jims and pringles so <laughs> I, I get it i get it and and apples i gotta have an apple once in a while so makes me feel good about myself <laughs> but um but overall would you consider this lyric one of peter's better lyrics i mean i'm not really sure like because, like, you can't really compare it to, 
like the heart-wrenching emotional lyrics that he wrote for songs like Epitaph, but just from like a writing perspective, like how the words flow together, like it's it's pretty good, yeah. And it, it's melodic for sure. Yeah. And they're catchy. But I think I think really when when Sinfield drops the ball is when he kind of gets lost in the idea that he's trying to present with the, with the tune. So let's say like Epitaph or even Schizoid Man, like he's incredibly on point and everything fits perfectly with the theme as well as being melodically suited to the song. But on this or even in the wake of Poseidon, the, I think the idea gets kind of lost within all the lyrics because he definitely has this, I think he just has this itch to try to write lyrics that have less commonly used words to try to sound more interesting or like educated, you know, which can come off yeah. as, which it can come off as pretentious, but I get the idea if you're like a lyricist and that's all you are, you know, you definitely want to not just use the same words all the time because people who are mainly songwriters, but aren't like mainly lyricists, you'll see them repeat things often, but it's probably because they're not thinking about it as much. So, and it's kind of a thing with um, say like rappers for existence, for example, there are uh, some rappers who have, who use like many, many different kinds of words and explore the English language to very interesting depths. And then you have other rappers who don't at all, who just stick to the very basic kind of stuff. And I think Sinfield would fall more sort of wanting to be more like complex with his word structure ideas. But I feel sometimes his intention of wanting to do that can overtake. It's like, yeah, but what are you trying to say? Like, what is the goal of this song? You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think he says it pretty clearly in the in this verse, like, oh yes, goodies for the table, flavor on the label, drowning in miracle sauce. Like he's seeing the label on some like processed food, and he's like, "This is bullshit." Yeah, like the last line is the one that makes the most sense. Don't think I am that yeah. rude if I tell you that it's cat food, not even fit for a horse. Like that 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 sums it all up. Yeah, and maybe the maybe the journey there is a bit wobbly. But at the end, it does resolve itself. And it's pretty obvious what it's trying to say. So, but it's definitely more streamlined than some of the lyrics he, he has written. Um, I know when we get to Lizard, it's going to be interesting to dissect all the ideas he's trying to convey in those tracks. Um, or even Islands, where I think in Islands, he did streamline his ideas decently well. So here he's... He's, it, it, this is him trying to write a pop song. And you can tell, like, pop songs aren't his foray yet. He would write pop songs later, not just, like, with Greg Lake with I Believe in Father Christmas, but I think, like, even into the 80s, he wrote, like, lyrics for successful 80s hits. So he eventually figured it out. Um, and maybe this song is part of his sort of figuring it out era, I guess. But for that, I, st I still enjoy the lyrics, but they're far from his best. Yeah. Which is kind of my opinion on the song overall. I love the song, but it's far from Crimson's best. Like, it's nothing I would use to describe King Crimson at all. Unless I was specifically talking about this period of Crim, 
like if I was to make like a King Crimson mixtape, I don't know if I would put this song on there. Like I'd probably put like Cadence and Cascade on here instead, just because I like that song a lot more. Or just stick to trying to channel each era differently. But I'd, but I'd probably get to Cat Food at some point, just because it's so weird and interesting of a song. You know, for being probably the shortest song on the record, song song, not talking about the peace stuff. Um, that yeah, for like the most compact tune, it has the most musicality within it in a way, you know? They're not yeah. trying to stretch things indefinitely with little to no reason or just trying to make things long because that's what you do. It definitely feels more like we just have a good five minutes and we're just going to make it work. And, and, and even with like the coda, I guess I would call it a coda at the very end where they just kind of play off on it before it just kind of ends abruptly with that little uh, Keith. My favorite bit is that little Keith Tippett piano bit at the end. The doodly. I love that. Yeah. That part's great. Tasty, tasty. But um, I, but also this song is another example as of within the wake of Poseidon of how strong Michael Giles is as a drummer. Like I love his just tight pocket jazzy flavored drumming. And it's just, it's one of my favorite tracks of his as a player. Cause it just, it just shows his taste, you know, that even with something that's a bit more poppy, he doesn't take the spotlight at all. You know, it's not like in the wake of Poseidon where his drumming is definitely the front and center here. It's very much in the back, but it still is just as memorable. Yeah. Like the song I feel is just a really great rhythm, like both the drums and the the bass, Mm -hmm. like the bass riff is just so good. It definitely has that Jowls, Jowls and Fripp vibe about it. Cause that's definitely who's at the core of this. Well, this whole album is the core of those three, but this song in particular. And even if we were to talk about the B-side, which is Groon, which is essentially Jowls, Jowls, and Fripp, because it's just the three of them, and they did, I don't know how many takes of Groon, probably like 50. (laughs) Different every time. Slightly different every time, yeah. It was definitely like very much like a jazz song where it's like, okay, we have the main melody, We'll do that bit. We'll do those couple bars. And then after that, we'll figure it out. Um, But it just shows how tight the Giles brothers were as a rhythm section and how Fripp was able to just sort of fit himself in there perfectly to make a really strong rhythm trio. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, it's easier to compare the first Giles, Giles and Fripp album to In the Wake than Giles, Giles and Fripp to In the Court. And not just because it has the same three guys, but also I think there are some music musical similar similarities between the two records in some spots. Yeah. Um, closer with Groon. Um, I don't want I don't want to do an episode on Groon because I yeah. Like I, I've listened to it's probably out of all the King Crimson songs I've heard in my life, it is the one I've heard probably every variation of imaginable. It's quite it's, a tune. I, I like it, but I've heard it so much. I'd be perfectly happy if I never heard it again. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the studio version just because just I like to hear Michael Drowse's drumming on it. 
because there's so many live versions during the islands era that just i'm almost shocked they never brought it back for the modern era they were like hey let's just try groon let's just do groon for like 10 minutes let's stop at 10 oh please (laughs) there's so many 20 minute groons it hurts i know oh god oh god i don't want to hate on groon because i like the idea of it i just think they got carried away with it yeah very though it would have been funny if like the wet and era tried groon that would have been interesting that would have been really interesting yeah because i almost feel like the song could just be a basic template for like every era of crimson to just show off how they could improvise yeah you know like definitely you had it with the islands band you could have done it with all the wet and variations and then like the 80s band do it which would be hilarious could you imagine oh my like god i synthie 80s crimson doing groon <laughs> oh god but with the electronic drums yeah i would love the fuck out of that that would be absolute insanity. And then, like, and but also, like, the imagine, like, Projects Eric in Crimson. Oh, God. So, like, Adrian Ballou drumming with Trey Gunn and Fripp doing Crimson. Oh. <laughs> uh, that, that's, just some, that's just some quirk. But that's some quirk I can get behind. Yeah. Uh, if only. If only. But yeah, more cat food, less groon. How about that? I think we all can agree on that one. So. Yes. So, final thoughts on cat food? You know, I'm just remembering that they did something for it for, like, that 50th anniversary. Like, like every Friday they would do a new video. Mm-hmm. It was, like, an early take of it. I think it was, like, I don't remember what it was about it. It was, like, the guitar was different or, like, it didn't have the piano or something. I think it, was, I think it just was an alternate mix. Something like that. yeah. Yeah. I listened to it and it wasn't it wasn't that amazing. It was cool to have. It was better to have it than not, but Yeah. From memory it wasn't the most like standout part of the fifty for fifty. Yeah. Now now if they gave us a Greg Lake's acapella vocals. Ooh, uh, that'd be cool. There's just something shouting about, about the grocery store. There there's just something about acapella vocals. And then, like, you faintly hear in the background, like, the instrumental track that it sounds like it's just pouring out of their headphones, like, really loudly. <laughs> yeah. I, there's just something about that aesthetic. It just, it sits with me in an interesting way. <laughs> yeah, it says it's the 2019 alternate mix. Again, yeah. I don't know what's alternate mix about it, but not in detail. But it, it, was, a, it was interesting. It's always interesting. So, but yeah. So overall, you you'd give cat food a a a, a thumbs up. A, Absolutely. A good job, Fripp. Keep it up. Good job, Bob. <laughs> I wonder how many times he's heard that in his life. Good job, Bob. <laughs> and I and I will agree. Good job, Bob. I'm a big fan of cat food. It's such a weird ass track, but it works. And that's just kind of King Crimson in general. It's weird, but it works. Yep. So once again, guys, thank you so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. And, you know, make sure to rate us and comment and tell everybody how great we are. You know, it helps our (laughs) self-esteem. And again, if you'd ever like to email us anything and 
you know, maybe tell us something we could say on the show, make sure to email us at framebyframepod at gmail.com. So next time we will discuss the, the very long and very not Mars Devil's Triangle. So until Devil's Triangle, we'll see you all next time, everybody. Take care. Bye, everyone. <laughs>